This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura Suter. So this week we have got a lot of investing stuff for you. So including looking at whether the ever popular Fundsmith and Scottish Mortgage Funds have hit the rocks and looking at what's been dubbed the great rotation in markets. Joining me this week is Dan Coatesworth. Hi. Yes, we've got not one but two fund manager interviews for this week. We're speaking to Ian Lance from Temple Bar about value stocks resurging. And we talked to Sam Morse from Fidelity for the European section of our Round the World investing series. We're also going to look at the latest figures that show a rise in the number of first time home buyers. But first, we wanted to acknowledge a big milestone. So the Money and Markets podcast has hit 1 million downloads, which is probably equal parts exciting and slightly unbelievable. But we wanted to say thanks a lot to everyone who's listened over the three odd years we've been doing this. Yeah, I mean, thank you very much. This this is really such a good achievement for us. Um, and to mark the occasion um, and say thank you very much for your support, we're going to give away a set of Apple AirPods. Now, to be in a chance of winning, we want you to tell us what you like most about the podcast. And you've either got to tell us on AJ Bell You Invest Twitter account or go to the AJ Bell Group Instagram account. Now, go on there and include the hashtag money markets millions in your answer. And you also have to follow us on one of those accounts to, to be able to enter this competition. So it's at AJ Bell you invest for Twitter or at AJ Bell Group for Instagram. So we'll you've got until the 10th of February to enter in and we'll pick a winner at random soon after. Do you think everyone's just gonna say Dan? It's just gonna be a one-word tweet. Dan is my favorite thing. <laughs> just just put just put Dan hashtag money markets millions and you'll be in with a great chance. Right. Enough of that. Let's get on to the markets for this week. So what has been going on Dan? Well, God, it's been a real whirlwind. I, you know, it, it's truly been a very difficult start to the year. When everyone sort of has these sort of New Year's resolutions, you know, get you'd be really good with your money and and sensible and stuff, but it doesn't help when you just see the value of your sort of portfolio you know, fall by quite a bit. Just to get, put that into some context, so between the first and the twenty sixth of January, the U.S. Nasdaq index has fallen by around fourteen percent. And I think a lot of people are going to be shocked by that, given that US markets have been such a great source of wealth creation in the last decade. Now, we've also seen losses across markets in Japan, in China and continental Europe, but actually one of the few markets to deliver a positive return to investors so far this year is the UK. And that's up nearly 2%. And that's measured by the FTSE 100 index. Now, that index is full of sectors that people previously said you know, they're boring, they're old economy. But actually, these are sort of considered by experts to be quite good places to put your money if you're in a sort of situation as we are now with a backdrop of inflation and rising interest rates. So it's, it's uh, yes, it's, it's very difficult. You've got anyone who's been invested in tech has sort of suffered. Um, they are deemed to be less attractive if interest rates are going up. Um, and, and now sort of you've got investors less willing to pay up for fast growth. So you're seeing shares derate. You also have to consider 
that the appeal of lower risk assets like cash and bonds are boosted when rates are rising, meaning more speculative stocks are out of favour as lower risk assets stand to deliver higher returns. You know, and all of this kind of adds up to a rotation in the market away from fast growth and more towards value stocks. And so we've got lots on that on the show um, today. So we've got Ian Lance from Temple Bar talking more about that topic and also our very own Ryan Hughes talking about the impact that has on some of the bigger funds that lots of people will be invested in. Um, Dan, you talked about some big uh, movements there in terms of broader markets, but can you give some examples of actual share price movements we've seen this year, either for the positive or the negative? Yeah, I mean, oil producers have benefited from strong oil price and the fact their shares are cheap. And these are classic value stocks. So BP is a great example. Its shares are up nearly 19% year to date. Tobacco has been out of favour for a long time. That's left stocks trading on cheap valuations. They also pay really generous dividends. Now, tobacco stocks have bounced back. So we've seen a 16% rise in British American tobacco in less than a month. Now, we've also had some reopening plays as well. So I'm talking about companies that have been held back by COVID. But now, because we're seeing relaxation of rules, this could actually give them a greater chance of growing the earnings. And so we've seen the cinema company, Cineworld, that's up 28% year to date. And the airline EasyJet is up by 14%. But you know, it's not just the UK. In the, in the US, we've had some big companies issue um, updates on their earnings Netflix's share price is absolutely hammered. Uh, the market didn't like its um, outlook for much slower subscriber growth. Now, MasterCard came with much better than expected numbers. Its shares initially fell by 5%, but then later in the session, after they had the analyst conference call, the shares were up. And you know we saw that as well earlier this week with the NASDAQ slumped early in one session, but ended the day higher. Uh, you know This is a fast moving, but unfortunately unpredictable market. So anyway, so should we move on to some personal finance news? I did spot some new data on these first-time buyers, which was really interesting. Yeah, so Halifax put out some really interesting figures um, this week that kind of bucks the trend of what you might expect. So there were a record number of first-time buyers last year, despite the fact that we saw house prices absolutely soaring and affordability falling, um, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Essentially, what happened is the stamp duty holiday that we had last year um, obviously didn't help first-time buyers because they already had stamp duty exemptions. So for first-time buyers, if you buy a property up to £300,000, you don't have to pay stamp duty and then you pay a reduced rate up to half a million pounds. Um, So the stamp duty holiday didn't directly affect those first-time buyers. But what it did do is meant that this kind of race for space and all of these people moving house um, freed up a lot of what Halifax has dubbed first-rung properties. So those kind of um, flats and homes that you're going to buy as your first step onto the ladder. And so that in itself encouraged more first-time buyers to come forward and buy properties. So 400,000 bought their first home in 2021, up 35% from the previous year, according to those Halifax figures. Um, So that's, I guess, the, the kind of good news. The less good news is that affordability is becoming worse and worse. So um, on average, properties now cost seven times the annual salary for first-time buyers. And um, to put that in context, what's seen as kind of an affordable level is four times. Um, 
And that four times figure, uh, if we look at the number of areas where you could buy a property for four times the average salary in that area, there was only 15 local authorities in the entire UK where you were within those affordability limits. Um, So more first-time buyers buying, more housing stock, I guess, becoming available as people move up the ladder, but it's becoming less and less affordable. And as such, that's pushed up the average um, age that people buy their first property at. So about a decade ago, that was 29. um, And now that's risen to 32 last year. Well, seven times salary, that is, you know, that's that's unsustainable, isn't it? I mean, it's the idea that you either have to have inherited money from someone in your family to get that deposit, um, or, you know, you're hoping for, you're in a well-paid job, you know, to get a chance to get on the house ladder. It's so frustrating. I'm even hearing things about people, they've they've got enough money for a deposit, but they keep getting, um, you know, get to that final stage and someone's come and offered considerably more than the asking price just to get that property. Yeah, I think the housing market is still a little bit balmy at the moment. But um, one thing that could potentially help is the Bank of England is looking at, changing mortgage affordability rules. So at the moment, the amount that you can borrow is constrained slightly by certain rules that stress test um, whether you'd still be able to afford that mortgage if interest rates were to soar. Um, And the Bank of England is looking at at changing some of that. So that might help some first-time buyers because often they can be in the slightly uh, crazy position where they're paying more for rent than they would be paying for a mortgage, but that mortgage is deemed unaffordable for them um, once you've taken into account all of the kind of stress tests. So that might help improve affordability a little bit, but it's certainly not going to stop house prices rising. Yeah. So rising inflation around the world has led many central banks to talk about raising interest rates. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, this has seen a bit of rotation in the markets where We've gone from high growth stocks that relied on cheap money to grow. Now, these have fallen out of favour, and that particularly affects the technology sector. But in turn, many investors have switched their money to slower growth companies like banks. Now, these are known as value stocks. To talk us through some of this rotation and also why it matters is Ian Lance, a fund manager from Temple Bar. So value rallies have a tendency of dying out uh, quite quickly. Do you think the current one is going to be the same or actually has this value rally got legs? Um, I, I think it's got legs, um, but actually, and I, and I can understand why you say value rallies have a tendency to die out quickly, because certainly in the last few years, that has been the case. Interestingly, in the longer term, it's not the case. And actually, we went back and we looked at all the value rallies back to the 1970s. And actually, on average, they do last about five years you know interesting which which might surprise a lot of people but if, if you think about you know the big rally value rallies were 73 to 78 80 to 88 90 to 95 2000 to 2007 so on average they lasted as i say about 62 months about five years and interestingly the average return across that period was about 200 percent versus about 70 for the market so so so, so about sort of 130 percent more than the market so you know, actually, historically, value rallies do last quite a long time. And and then answering the question about this one, what's interesting about this one is that the starting point is actually wiser than any of those other value rallies. But what I mean by that is that the the gap in the valuations between growth stocks and value stocks in the market 
is wider today than it was at the start of any of those other value rallies. And, and that's why I think that this, this value rally has got legs. Okay. So I, I know that we've certainly seen, say, in say recent years, sort of snippets of value rallies. Perhaps I should have said that at the start. So, yes. Um, but you know, obviously you, you, you give some clear evidence that um, when they are in motion, that they, they can last for perhaps longer than people think. So Yes, absolutely right. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people are calling the current sort of sell-off, uh, you know, saying this is a purely a tech sell-off, but you know, the decline is not actually limited to the sector because it does also seem that many stocks that sit in quality global growth funds are actually falling in value as well. Does that sort of suggest that people have essentially paid too much to own quality growth in recent years and now we've perhaps got a mean reversion back to sort of lower earnings multiples yeah i, th- I think that's exactly what it means daniel um and, and you're absolutely right although sort of technology has been at the forefront of this it's it's but by no means you know the only sector that has been bid up and so if you think about uh, sectors like consumer staples that's been another very in vogue um, sector and and it, and it certainly sort of fits the bill, doesn't it, of, of, of quality. Um, and again, just to give you some data here, um, you know, one one of the sort of favourite stocks of all the quality funds is Diageo, the drinks company. And uh, we, we looked at the long term valuation of that uh, for, for two decades. That had traded at about one point seven times sales, um, and just in recent years, it's gone up to seven times sales. So there's, there's been the most colossal re-rating of that company. Um, and the fundamentals have not changed that much. You know, a lot of these companies, yes, they, they, they are quality companies, whatever that means, but they're not, a, they're not that amazing. You know, another very topical example maybe would be Unilever, um, which actually has not shown a lot of growth uh, in the last few years. And, you know, that probably explains why um, they, they've been discussing buying Glaxo's consumer health business to try to sort of fill in that growth gap. And, and yet, you know, again, the shares of that company got bid up to sort of very, very, very high multiples on a historic basis. So, so I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think that sector is, is those sectors are now derating. And there's one, there's one final one, which maybe I'll mention, and that's that, that's the sector which I suppose you could call this, um, you know, sustainable renewables, whatever you want to call it. So it's so it's those sort of shares that are, um, I suppose, at the forefront of the uh, the fight against climate change. An awful lot of money has gone into those sectors um, in the last few years, and as you know, the technology sector has started to roll over. So exactly the same has happened here. So. I was reading a couple of days ago that a sort of a basket of clean energy shares, um, in, including shares like Iberdrola, Vestas, Orsted, has now halved from its peak. Um, similarly, a basket of solar, you know, solar panel shares has also halved from its peak. So I think that you know that's another good example where it's 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 not necessarily technology, but but they're going through the same sort of pattern. In other words, they got bid up to to very, very high valuations and, and are now starting to derate. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean where, where do you think the best places now are to find value shares that you think have got good prospects to go up? So it's, it, 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 it's the sector, we think it's the sectors that people basically shunned. So it's almost the mirror image of some of the sectors that we've just been talking about. So it's the, it's the sectors where either people didn't like them for ESG reasons and um, energy and mining would be a good example of that. Um, or it's sectors where 
people people effectively just wrote them off for saying that they were going to be um you know they were in structural decline they were going to be disintermediated etc etc so uh, financials might be an example of that you know the 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 traditional banks everyone seemed to think that um, the fintechs were going to come in and uh, and we're going to take their market share now that hasn't happened and yet the the valuations of these things got very low um you know let, let me give you an example in the in the bank sector in in as as we first went into lockdown the share price of nat west group uh which is the old royal bank of scotland um fell to the same level that it was in 2008 when the government had to come in and and, and bail it out basically even though it was just completely different business you know the 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 loan book, uh, the capital strength were much, much better than they were back then. And yet, you know, people were so pessimistic on this sector that, that, that you know, that they bid it down to that sort of level. Returning to the energy sector, um, what, what I find interesting about the energy sector is this is this is, in my mind, exactly the sort of sector that you want to be in in today's environment of, of rising inflation, rising commodity prices. And yet you can access it very, very cheaply today. So these, these, these companies, you know, the big energy companies trade on free cash flow yields. So in other words, that's the cash that they generate after their, their interest tax and capital expenditure divided by the market cap of about 15%. Uh, you know, that, that is very, very cheap on historical basis. So exactly the right sector you want to be, um, but, but available at quite a cheap, cheap, cheap price. Yeah, well, Ian Lance from Temple Bar Investment Trust, thank you very much for joining us today. That's a pleasure, Daniel. So that switch away from some of those stocks that have fueled market returns over the past few years has definitely taken some investors by surprise, particularly newcomers to investing. Um, and an area where lots of investors will have seen that is in the falling value of some of the really big popular funds such as um, Scottish Mortgage and Fundsmith. So I've been chatting to Ryan Hughes from the AJ Bell Investment Team about how investors should handle those falls and what's driving them. So thanks for joining us today, Ryan. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the big popular funds that have seen falls in value recently. So in particular, I'm thinking about Scottish Mortgage and Fundsmith. So these are owned by lots and lots of investors but and have delivered some pretty amazing returns over the longer term. So if we look um, particularly at Scottish Mortgage, for example, mm-hmm. I've got some facts for you here. Um, yep. £100 invested 20 years ago is now worth £2,018. But to highlight some of the problems that it's had with performance recently, £100 invested a year ago is now only worth £80. So um, first, let's look at the kind of bigger picture. Why have the likes of Scottish Mortgage and Fundsmith and um, other funds as well fallen in value recently? Well, I mean, they're, they're great stats. And you were quite right to say that Scottish Mortgage and others have been fantastic performers for many, many investors over a long period of time. But we are entering a very interesting phase of the global economy, really. Uh, and and investors are in a little bit of a tricky position in that because the world is changing and central banks are changing, uh, in uh, changing their policy in that they're having to now think about putting up interest rates, we're getting a switch out of the uh, very popular growth companies. So think of all those companies that have done really well over the last few years, the likes of your your Tesla and your Amazon uh, and, and those kind of tech names, some of the Chinese names. Those companies that have done phenomenally well and reached very high valuations 
uh, and they are all being um, sold down at the moment as investors think about switching to companies that are likely to benefit from an interest rate rise, both in the US and the UK. And the likes of Scottish Mortgage, Tesla, uh, sorry, Scottish Mortgage uh, and Fundsmith um, and, and many others have all benefited from these great stocks. Uh, but because the market's rotating away from them, they're now facing a headwind. And you've seen Scottish Mortgage fall between 20 and 30 percent over the last three or four months uh, there. So it is really quite a big shift in sentiment as investors grapple with what looks like to be a changing situation in the global economy. And so I guess the big question is, what should investors do about this? I mean, if lots of them who will have invested in um, these funds, and we're obviously talking about two of the biggest, most popular ones, but there will be lots of others under this umbrella. Um, Lots of people that have invested in them have probably only ever known record, record returns, great returns year on year and and never any losses. So um, firstly, I imagine it's going to be a bit of a shock to some investors. But secondly, um, what should they do about this? If, if there's a big rotation, should they should they be selling? Yeah, um, yeah, really good question. It kind of gets into the heart of whole behavioural finance and psychology of investing and individuals uh, here. So first things first, it, everyone has to remember that if you if you invest in something and it goes up a lot quickly, it's also got the chance of going down a lot quickly. You can't really have one without the other. Um, yeah, there, there will always be periods when investments struggle, when they lose money. Sometimes they'll lose money quickly uh, there. So when you invest, you need to accept that that's one of the risks of investing. Uh, and that's exactly what investors are finding out with the likes of Scottish Mortgage today. So how do you deal with that? Well, firstly, you need to understand what you're buying. Uh, and we've talked about this on podcasts over the last couple of years about the importance of knowing what you are investing in. So all of the holders of Scottish Mortgage and similar type funds should know that they're invested in growth companies in a concentrated portfolio with exposure to the US and China and other and other markets um, with exposure to unquoted companies. They're companies that aren't listed on the stock market, which can come with increased risk. So when you know all of those factors, you, you should accept that there, there can be some volatility uh, with this. So for existing investors, if you're not comfortable with that, um, then you may need to take some action. So make sure you're comfortable with the risk of your existing in- investments. Make sure you understand the diversification that's in your portfolio here. So if you're looking at your portfolio at the moment with this volatility and you're seeing all of your company, your investments fall in a similar manner, it might well be that you don't have uh, sufficient diversification in your portfolio that you're, you're kind of exposed to the same types of risks uh, and you haven't got a broad spread so that might be an argument for introducing some different types of investments that could benefit from uh, this environment we're moving into rather than be hit by it i think also what we have to remember that lots and lots of investors invest on a monthly basis be it maybe in their isa or their pension if you're investing as a monthly saver actually you've got that kind of regular buying going on, you might be profiting or be able to profit in the long run from the fall in the share price, because that monthly saving might be buying more shares at a lower price. And if you keep doing that uh, through this period, then hopefully when things recover, that they'll, they'll, you'll, you'll be making uh, some decent money uh, from that. So I think understand the style you've got, understand your investment. First things first, don't panic. Uh, it's so easy to panic when you see market falls and you end up kind of buying at the top and selling at the bottom and locking in losses. So 
be patient, make sure you understand what you have uh, and, and, and try not to make any irrational decisions. And with Scottish Mortgage particularly, it's obviously a very um, large investment trust and lots of people invest in it. But you touched on the kind of risk profile of it there. So it has the ability to invest up to 30% of its assets in unlisted companies. So there's ones not listed on the stock exchange, like you mentioned. And um, I've got I've got another great fact here from The mm-hmm. Times uh, from... 2015 to 2019, um, the shares in Scottish Mortgage fell by more than 7% on 11 separate occasions. And so I think what that highlights there is that it has always been quite volatile, but for investors generally, it's come out on the up and given them large returns. So maybe is this a bit of a wake up call to investors that even though it's large, it's very well known, that doesn't mean that it's it doesn't carry quite a lot of risk with it? Yeah, absolutely right. Every investment ca- carries risk. Uh, and when you're investing in certain types of companies, you arguably might be carrying even greater risk. This this investment trust has always had uh, a higher degree of volatility. And you're quite right. Yeah, the, the Times analysis there, the number of sharp falls that it has had over the years. Um, it, yeah, it, This, in many respects, isn't unusual. Uh, and we talk a lot when we talk to investors about investing, about understanding what the likely performance profile is of your investments before you buy them. So you should, if you've invested in Scottish Mortgage, you should have gone into that knowing that it can be very volatile. Uh, and that should hopefully avoid you making um, irrational decisions uh, when when you don't need to. Yeah, for example, if this investment is in your pension and you've got, I don't know, 20 years to go to retirement, is this full material to to you today? Um, it really only matters when you're thinking about coming to coming to retire, and this should be seen as part of the normal ebb and flow of investing in stock markets. But clearly, as the as the economy is pivoting, as central banks are looking to put up interest rates potentially quite sharply, that's obviously the environment we've not had for a long period of time, uh, and therefore it will. I think take quite a while for for markets to adjust to this new environment, and so I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see this this type of volatility persisting for quite some time, uh, and therefore being patient and understanding what you've what you've invested in uh, will probably be a good way of seeing you through this. And so, for kind of newcomer investors who maybe have only ever um, been investing during a period of you know low interest rates, um, lower inflation. Um, what kind of checks should they be making on their portfolio? What type of investments should they maybe be considering if they've realised that they've got too much concentrated towards this one style? Yeah, I think this comes back to something I call the illusion of diversification, uh, which which is when, when investors think they're diversified in their portfolio, but actually they discover the hard way that too many of their investments are, are invested in the same type of company. When you're building a diverse portfolio, you want to build complementary holdings into your portfolio. So what that that meant, if I, if I think about something that complements Scottish mortgage, it would be something that invests uh, in, in what are known as value stocks. So they're, they're stocks that have uh, often in a cyclical nature, they've got much less predictable profit profiles um, that they, they need. Uh, they, they, they often uh, kind of ride the, the economy, its ups and its downs. Uh, and therefore, they perform quite differently to... Um, to the types of stocks in Scottish mortgage. So holding something like a value style investment, 
alongside a growth style investment like Scottish Mortgage can build in some diversification into your portfolio and actually smooth out some of the, the peaks and troughs uh, that will naturally get with investing. So I think it's a good opportunity for all investors just to take a step back, have a look at your portfolio, think about what you've got, make sure you have you aren't overexposed to a particular style, uh, and then think about what what kind of missing pieces of the jigsaw are there, um, because that's how you need to think about your portfolio. It's it's a jigsaw puzzle. Each investment is one of the pieces and you've got to try and put it together uh, in a way that paints the picture that you want to see uh, and uh, you know sometimes that means making a few difficult decisions like buying things that aren't doing very well uh, and a lot of value investing is exactly that buying investments that other people uh, don't like uh, it can be painful but at times like now it really comes into its own when you get the benefit of that diversification some great advice there and i'm probably gonna just log on to my portfolio and do a few checks now i think uh, but thanks a lot for that ryan no problem thanks for having me and now we have the next in our round the world investment series so so far we have covered the uk and the us and you can go back and listen to those in the previous two weeks episodes but now we're headed to europe to look at the outlook for the region this year and speaking to fund manager sam morse from fidelity before we hear from Sam, Tom Sieber is here with me to go through some of the key points about the European markets. And just for the purposes of this episode, it's worth noting that we're going to exclude the UK from the conversation as we've covered that region in the previous podcast. Yes. Hi, Dan. Continental Europe is an interesting and often overlooked region from an investment perspective. It definitely deserves a closer look as investors could have made good money from this part of the world over the years. For investors looking to invest directly in European markets and wanting to know the main stock indices to focus on. I would start with the Euro Stocks 50, and that's the leading index of blue chip stocks from across the Eurozone. In 2021, for example, it returned 20% versus just 14% from the FTSE 100 in the UK. So this index, just to drill down into it a bit further, comprises 50 of the largest stocks from across the Euro currency area, weighted by market capitalization, and excludes stocks listed in the UK, Scandinavia and Switzerland. Names in the Eurostocks include ASML, Airbus, L'Oreal, Santander and Philips. Now, for anyone who is specifically interested in the shares of German companies, the benchmark index is the DAX, which tracks the 40 largest companies traded on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. Now, it was 30 companies until last year when the rules changed. Now, the DAX is heavily skewed towards consumer companies. So you'll see names like Adidas, BMW, Daimler and Porsche in there. Now, financial stocks used to be a big part of that index, but they've now got a much smaller weighting than in the past. And that's kind of a similar story to what's happened with the FTSE 100 in the UK. Before we talk a little bit more about the different ways in which you can get exposure to the European market, let's bring on Sam Morse, who runs the Fidelity European Trust. Sam was first an analyst and then a fund manager on this trust, which has been going for three decades and whose first manager was Anthony Bolton who some listeners may be familiar with. Sam has been covering this region for a long time and knows Europe inside out from an investment perspective. So continental Europe is known for having car manufacturers and banks, but what else is on offer for investors if they look at markets like Germany and France? Well, that may be how people uh, view investing in continental Europe, um, but the reality, Dan, is a little different. Um, you know, obviously, these companies, car companies and banks, you know, they're big employers, they're high profile because they're consumer facing. 
Um, but they actually, you know, on a combined basis, only actually represent uh, about a tenth uh, of the continental European uh, benchmark. Um, I mean, interesting, you know, Europe's not well known for technology um, and obviously it's a smaller com component versus, say, the US, which has, you know, big consumer facing mega caps like Apple. But actually, despite that, you know, technology as a sector actually now accounts for about as much as cars and banks in the uh, continental European benchmark. Um, and we've got some great companies. Um, they tend to be um, business to business operations, uh, you know, so they're, they're supplying businesses, customers are primarily other businesses, but companies like SML, um, which is now actually, I think, the second largest company in the benchmark, uh, SAP, you mentioned Germany, SAP, um, you know, very important in the digitalization of, of companies globally, uh, Dassault System in France. Um, so, you know, perhaps there are less visible component um, of the benchmark, but uh, growing very strongly. Um, you know, and, and, and I think talking of cars and autos, you know, everybody loves to drive a luxury car, you know, BMW, Mercedes, perhaps even a Ferrari, you know, those are all well-known companies in, in continental Europe. Um, but luxury is, you know, much bigger than that, especially in continental Europe. And, um, you know, obviously, um, we've got powerhouses like Louis Vuitton, uh, MS, both of which are owned in the fund, um, you know, and they benefited hugely from the growing spending power of uh, emerging markets and the middle class in the emerging markets and, and the Chinese, etc. We expect that to continue. So, and, and really, when you think about it, I mean, if you try to think of, you know, uh, big luxury good companies in the US, you might think of Tiffany, well, uh, you know, which is actually now recently been taken over by LVMH. You might think of Burberry in the UK, but no, nothing of the scale uh, that we see in continental Europe. You know, these are very much global leaders in their field. So, you know, I'd say, yes, you you know, you might be right that car manufacturers and banks is, is sort of the old perception of continental Europe, but, you know, the makeup of continental Europe and the markets is, is changing uh, quite rapidly. Yeah. So uh, certainly when I've talk to people over the years, Europe seems to be pretty much out of favour with a lot of investors. I guess it's not helped by lots of political disasters and the Greek crisis, but um, you, know, you, you could have still made decent money in this part of the world. Um, do you think it, that, that, is there something that could happen to help <clears throat> Europe's reputation improve in terms of um, how it's perceived by investors? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you're right. Uh, continental Europe's not the most sort of fashionable place to put your money. Uh, I think investors are often put off by sort of, you know, negative newspaper headlines uh, about politics and sclerotic economies. Um, and I can't predict that that will improve. Europe certainly faces some longer term drags on its growth, you know, with low productivity, unfavorable demographics, high levels of government debt, etc. Um, but of course, you know, we're, we're not investing in, in, in European countries as such. We're investing in European companies. Uh, and actually, European companies have done pretty well over time. Um, you know, it's uh, a bit like the UK's stock market, you know, European stock markets are much uh, less and less about domestic Europe, uh, which now represents less than half their sales and profits. It's much more about global, uh, you know, the global economy. Um, and, and interestingly, actually, Dan, we just celebrated the 30th uh, anniversary of uh, the investment trust that I run, uh, Fidelity uh, European Trust. Um, and it's interesting that actually over that period, 
um, the continental European stock markets have done um, every bit as well as the global stock markets. You know, the benchmark has performed in line uh, with the global benchmark. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's 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 really an opportunity to invest in in some great companies. Um, and you know, even if Europe is not fashionable. Um, you know, there are some great opportunities to make money um, over time. Um, you know, what, what might change? I mean, I guess if you were concerned particularly about, you know, the, the very high valuations on mega cap tech in the US, you know, that might make Europe look relatively attractive. Um, you know, Europe tends to do relatively well when the global economy is strong and when value is outperforming. Um, so, you know, I think often people think of it as a high beta play on global growth. Um, I think that's probably about right. So, are there sort of certain industries that you um, you've invested in 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 the Fidelity European Trust? Um, I know, obviously, you say you're a stock picker, but is does that naturally lead you to certain sectors when you're looking for opportunities? Yeah, I mean, our, our approach um, is a bit different, as you mentioned. I mean, we are uh, out and out stock pickers, and in particular, I focus on attractively valued dividend growers. Um, and actually try to make sure that the portfolio is, is very well balanced, you know, across industries and sectors uh, and other factors to make sure that it's really the, the sort of stock picking rather than other factors uh, that drives the performance of the, um, of the trust over the long term. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it's very surprising where you do unearth great stocks. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure food manufacturing is considered a pretty dull industry by many, but, you know, one of the great performance in the trust over the 30 years um, has been um, uh, Nestle, you know, the leading global food manufacturer. Uh, we still think it's a great prospect, too. Um, I mean, interestingly, um, the total return from Nestle over that 30-year period is very similar to the total return from the trust, which is about 14% per annum, um, which is um, attractive relative to the benchmark, which is delivered around um, uh, 9% or so per annum. Um, and, you know, it, interestingly, although it's the largest global food manufacturer, it only has about a 3% market share. Um, so still plenty of room to grow organically and by acquisition, uh, despite already being a pretty huge company um i mean you'll you'll know uh, as your investors will know as well you know the, this company with very strong brands in attractive categories like you know coffee think about espresso and coffee or uh, purina in in pet food etc uh but i think you know in the past there was some criticism about its record on capital allocation um i think with the new management team when i say new but they've been in place now for three or four years or so i think that capital allocation has improved dramatically and that's now paying off in terms of increased organic growth and better returns uh, and finally and very importantly to me you know nestle has been a fantastic long-term dividend grower i think it's grown its dividend almost every year uh, during that 30-year period uh, and that's in swiss francs <laughs> which has obviously been a very strong currency so um yeah i mean uh, we're not really very focused on on sort of Overweighting certain industries aggressively or underweighting industries, we're really trying to find uh, good, good, uh, you know, good, consistent dividend growers within industries uh, and sticking with them. Yeah. So, what, just finally, what's your outlook for 2022? Are you feeling quite optimistic or, or sort of a bit, bit cautious about what might be coming in the months yeah. ahead? Yeah. Um, well, uh, Dan, I, I, I probably like most people, I feel cautiously optimistic uh, as an as a equity investor. You know, I guess the main 
uh, reason I feel a little bit more optimistic is, you know, I think uh, with this Omicron wave, there is a bit more, a bit more of a feeling that certainly in 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 the developed world, you know, US, Europe, UK, that we're moving from, uh, you know, pandemic to endemic. And um, given the rate, high rates of vaccination in 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 most of those countries, and <clears throat> the fact that Omicron seems to be vaccinating the unvaccinated, so to speak, and obviously we've got a, a more and more treatments um, such that you know the the link between hospitalizations and deaths and infection does seem to have have, have been uh, reduced quite dramatically, um, which is very encouraging. So, you know, I think um, today, last year, obviously there were still uh, large parts of the economy that, uh, in particular, in services, you know, that that was struggling. And, you know, I, so I'm, I'm hopeful that this year, um, you know, things uh, fundamentally will improve and that will feed through to earnings, uh, good earnings growth. I mean, obviously, we'll have to keep an eye on inflation and on the central bank's response to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do feel cautiously optimistic for 2022. Yeah, brilliant. Well, Sam Morse from Fidelity European Trust, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now we've had those great insights into the European market, the next thing to consider is how to get exposure as an investor, assuming this region is of interest to you. Fortunately, it's a pretty easy process. Most investment platforms in the UK will let you buy European listed shares and certainly the bigger ones. Now, if you don't want to own individual shares, an alternative route is to put money into a European focus fund or buy shares in a relevant investment trust or exchange traded fund, which tracks one of these European indices. Now, some of the best performing European investment trusts over the past five years include BlackRock Greater Europe Trust, Bailey Gifford European Growth and Fidelity European Trust, which is the fund run by Sam Morse, who we just heard from. Next week, we'll wrap up our Round the World Investing series by looking at the options for investors across Asia. And Ewan Markson Brown from Crux Asset Management will be on the show to give his views on that part of the market. So that's everything for this episode of the podcast. So thank you very much for listening. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you haven't yet rated or reviewed us on whichever podcast app you use, then please do, as it helps other people find us and means we will get to our next million downloads even quicker. So we'll see you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.